outdoors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Levitt. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's pod, Democrats in Congress inch closer to agreement on Joe Biden's agenda, despite what you may hear from a few whiny centrists and credulous reporters. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal talks to us about how progressives intend to bring both bills over the finish line, and we'll take a few minutes to answer some of your questions. I forgot we were doing Q&A. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. We had a, by the way, we already recorded the conversation with uh, uh, Pramila Jayapal. We did. It was delightful. It, it was, was a good conversation. She is a joy. Before we start, be sure to catch the final episode of This Land, which is out now. Award-winning journalist Rebecca Nagel concludes her investigation into a string of custody battles over Native American children that all lead back to powerful right-wing forces trying to dismantle American Indian tribal rights. To hear how it ends, binge all eight episodes of This Land wherever you get your podcast. It's a fantastic series. I am so impressed by this season. This the first season was great, but like Rebecca went through ten thousand pages of FOIA documents and traced yeah, she this. Did. She like this started with a small story about an adoption case, and it really she unraveled something very big and impressive. And just like the first season, uh, there's going to be a Supreme Court case. Yeah, so. love that. Yeah. Love them. Uh, all right, let's get to the news. Last week ended exactly where we thought it would. Nancy Pelosi indefinitely postponed Thursday's scheduled vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and Joe Biden told congressional Democrats that vote quote ain't going to happen until they all come to an agreement on the rest of the president's economic agenda, which he calls the Build Back Better plan. A group of nine centrist Democrats in the House had tried to force the infrastructure vote, but the 100-member Progressive Caucus blocked it, fearing that once infrastructure passed, the centrists would walk away from the rest of Biden's agenda. Sure enough, they issued a bunch of whiny statements in response to the vote being postponed. Josh Gottheimer who had predicted with, quote, a thousand percent certainty that he'd be celebrating the passage of the infrastructure bill with, quote, a nice glass of champagne, attacked Pelosi and compared his progressive colleagues to right-wing Republicans, while Kirsten Cinema called the delay, quote, an inexcusable, ineffective stunt. But the president himself expressed optimism about both bills passing when he spoke this morning. I've been able to close the deal on 99 percent of my party. <laughs> Two. Two people. That's still underway. I don't think there's been a president who's been able to close deals that's been in a position where he has only 50 votes in the Senate and a bare majority in the House. This is a process. This is a process. We'll get it done. Look, I need 50 votes in the Senate. I have 48. Uh, so Biden in the White House reportedly didn't even try to pressure House Democrats into voting for the infrastructure bill. Uh, Love it. Why do you think that was? He wants to pass both bills. He's been clear from the very beginning. He wants to pass both bills and they're tied together because that is the only way to ensure that he has the full support of 100 percent of the votes that he needs. I don't know why. I don't doesn't seem to me to be more complicated than that. But, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi, she was uh, she (laughs) she was scheduling it anyway. Everyone's like, why did Biden do that? Blah, blah, blah. Why did he throw his lot in? Seems seems like seems like he's always wanted to pass both bills, right, Tommy? Yeah, uh, I guess the legislative calendar doesn't end in September, like um, you might have thought if you read the news. There's more time. Actually, the world ends in, mm-hmm. in about the world ends in September. And part of this is like everyone has, especially people in the press, have like the memories of goldfish. Like, remember this whole episode in late June where Biden briefly said he wouldn't sign an infrastructure bill without Build Back Better passing, and then everyone freaked out and he had to walk it back. <laughs> But even when he walked it back, he still said he was going to try to pass both bills in tandem. Yeah. And I think you see in the cinema statement as well, kind of the 
like the continuation of that bit of kind of confusing politics, which, you know, there's like, I think the Gottheimer statement is a fit of peak and it's a bit performative and it's, you know, not letting an opportunity go to waste to, you know, secure his bona fides as a moderate lashing out at some of the progressives, fine, whatever he's having a day. But like cinema, her statement, I think kind of ties back to where, where kind of the heart of the negotiation has been between progressives in the house and moderates like cinema and mansion, which is for either her actual view or her negotiating position is the less they are tied together for her, the stronger her position is in debates over what should be in the final reconciliation package. Yeah. What, what kind of linked the sentiment in Josh Gottheimer's statements to me was two people who seem to put the process of legislating again, ahead of the results and the things that we're trying to pass. And I just think that like, if that's how you approach the job, you have lost the thread. I, I don't know what you're doing. What they are accusing progressives of, which is like holding the bipartisan infrastructure bill hostage to get their other bill passed, is exactly what they did when Gottheimer and his crew said, we won't vote for the budget resolution in the House unless you schedule a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is like, well, like my reaction to their statements is, you know, they're letting off some steam because they're pissed. But they could have, if they really wanted to be assholes in their statements, they could have said, I'm not voting for Build Back Better until there's a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. No one said that in their statements when they were all pissy on Friday night, did they? Yeah, there was a little bit of, um, there's a little bit with the Gottheimer statement. It's kind of like centering himself in the narrative. And it's, a, and I think that oh, yeah. what is exposed here is like this moment where he's like, you know, when he was like walking through the hall saying, I'm a thousand percent confident, we're not done yet. Like that's not where the action really was. And I think you can look at Pelosi's commitment in the context of hoping there would be more clarity from the Senate side that by the time we got to, whatever, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, which we're talking about from weeks earlier, that we'd finally have a bit more on the, in terms of what Manchin was for, what cinemas were for, that they could get to some kind of a commitment. But that just didn't happen. That's actually, that's not because of the House Progressive Caucus. That's not because of the moderate House members like Josh Gottheimer. That's because of what's happening in the Senate, yeah. between the Senate, between Schumer, the Senate, and the White House. So it's, it's clear that like Biden, progressive Democrats, most other Democrats in the party, all of us, we all think that one of the reasons that the centrists want the bipartisan infrastructure vote to pass so bad is because if that happens, then they can sort of walk away from Build Back Better, or we're worried that they may walk away from Build Back Better. But even if you take them at their word and say that they're doing this all in good faith, here's what I can't figure out. I don't know if you, what you guys think about this. Like, they keep saying, we have this big win on infrastructure. We should want to pass that. We promise we'll negotiate in good faith and Build Back Better after that. We should be going home right now and taking credit for a bipartisan infrastructure bill right now. Let us have that victory. Let the president have that victory. Why do they want to go home in October of 2021 to take credit for a bipartisan infrastructure bill when we're like a year out from an election where that's going to matter? Can you guys figure that out? Because they're not very good at politics or <laughs> smart. I mean, K K Kirsten Sinema called it an ineffective stunt to gain leverage. I would argue it's pretty effective. <laughs> and I, like, yeah. what is this like paternalistic tone about, you know, telling Joe Biden what we should run on when? Like, why don't we pass all the really important stuff and then go campaign on all the really important stuff? Or you can pick and choose. You can choose whatever you want to campaign. Go on. build a bridge on oh, your own yeah. time. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like, are you worried that the like you know, there's going to get some childcare stink on your highway bill? Like, I don't really understand. And and <laughs> the other piece of this, too, is it's like it really is like there is. It would be one thing if what you had was the progressive version of the bill the Biden version of the bill and the like cinema mansion version of the bill. But the but Biden and the progressive caucus are aligned and they are together trying to fight for as much of the Biden agenda as they can get through the moderates uh, in the House and the Senate. So, you know, we predicted that the most annoying reporters and pundits would freak out over a delayed vote, but uh, they really outdid themselves on this one. New York Times called it a big setback for Biden's agenda, said he was, quote, throwing in his lot with the left and compared House progressives to the right wing Freedom Caucus. CNN said it raised questions about the party's ability to govern. Axios led with the left seizes control. But the big winner was the Washington Post's Annie Linsky, who tweeted the following about a picture of the president walking through a cemetery where his son, daughter and former wife are buried. He was doing this on Sunday and she tweeted, quote, Biden goes to church and walks through a graveyard in Wilmington as his legislative agenda is dying in Washington. Uh, Linsky later deleted the tweet, which had also been retweeted by New York Times reporter Michael Scheer, uh, and she apologized for being insensitive. So <laughs> the tweet was obviously gross and mean, um, 
But I thought that overshadowed just how bad the analysis was about Biden's agenda dying in Washington. Like, what is your take on the overall media narrative that we're getting from some of these political reporters, Tommy? It's just, I mean, they're looking for something exciting. I mean, it's not dead yet. Right. I mean, they're just going to keep negotiating. And that's a lot more boring than saying, you know, Biden's on the ropes. You know, the, the, the legislative agenda is done, whatever. They're not wrong that, like, this wasn't a great outcome, that the more time that goes on, the harder it could be to pass things. Like, you'll hear more issues pop up. But yes, I mean, obviously, the Andy Linsky tweet was ridiculous. But I mean, I think the rest of it is just sort of typically hyperbolic. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really hard. I think we don't know. I think you can look at this as uh, a real setback in terms of getting to two bills passed, or you can look at this and say, for the first time, it seems like they're really heading towards actual numbers, which is something we've talked about in this pod. Yeah, I actually, Finally, I, I think it's, I think it's, it was, a, I think it was a good outcome. Right, like now we're really talking numbers. Like it just, this is something that felt like we were missing in the previous two weeks. We talked about it on Monday, you talked about it with Dan, like where is the actual hard negotiation with a little bit of evidence of it in the public about like what we're driving towards? And now we know, you know, Manchin's at this 1.5 bar. We started at 3.5. Some things are going to have to come out. Some things may get delayed. Some things may be capped, whatever. But it's a negotiation. It's the hard. It's the part. It's the part where they're actually getting right. into the numbers. And I find that reassuring. I was actually really I felt worse on Monday mm -hmm. when the the infrastructure bill was cooked. And there was this really amorphous debate about what the reconciliation bill would be. Now it feels a bit more solid. Also, my my one fear heading into this was that if Pelosi pulled the vote or the vote failed, that you would have some centrist saying, well, I don't care that it failed. I am not voting for Build Back Better until I get a vote on infrastructure. And the fact that this happened and none of them said that and now they're all at the table is, I think, a good sign. Yeah, I mean, you know, Josh Gottheimer thought he was leading an army and he looked behind him to find only his ass hanging out. You know, I mean, he's, there's not really a real... Um, movement there. I mean, the challenge is that Biden wanted the compromise to be 2.3 trillion. They were hoping to get Mansion and Cinema to 2.1. It seems like they're still standing firm on 1.5. So that's a lot of money. They're still pretty far apart. Like, I, hopefully, they can figure it out. But yeah, it's it. I mean, it is far from done. The whole thing could, of course, fall apart. But I do think you almost needed a moment like last week to get everyone paying attention and serious in the same room. I mean, Jayapal tells us this later, but like. You know, now Biden's really involved. The White House is super involved. Negotiators, they've been involved yeah. the whole time, but now they're like really, really involved. Well, but even like even like Pelosi's office, even like, you know, the House leadership seemed frustrated that the president wasn't more involved. Like that was all over the press. So clearly they were the ones saying it. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, uh, that was a, a bad tweet. And um, I would just uh, urge anyone listening, like when you see a bad tweet, I think you can comment on it and have a great time. Uh Everybody calm down. It was like a, it was a bad tweet. I saw so many people like looping like the editors of the Washington Post, like demanding heads on Pike. Like it was Sunday. Go outside. It was a garbage, crazy tweet. And then she apologized for it belatedly, took her an hour, whatever. But at some point, I mean, it is a whole we could have a whole another conversation about Twitter and stuff like that. But it's like you apologize. You got her. She's done. She you got apologized. her. You got her. It's uh, like, all right. well, yeah, the reason I raise it is I actually found it to be uh, one of but not the most, I think, over the top uh, takes out there. And it was this one from The Atlantic. Come Halloween. All that Biden might have to show for his negotiations with Congress over the past several months is a first ever U.S. debt default the presidential equivalent of sticking your hand into the candy bag and pulling out a razor blade instead, <laughs> what? which was one of the most bizarre ways I thought that was going to end at like good and plenty or something. No, yeah. it ends at, at, a, at a razor blade, at a razor blade. That's what the global financial crisis is in this metaphor. Uh, weird. Um, I'm going to look, whatever. We all send bad tweets. I'll take people at their word that they apologize and didn't mean them. It is funny that the folks sending and retweeting that tweet are also the civility police who are getting really upset at activists who dare to follow Kirsten Cinema into a school or into the bathroom, which look, going into the bathroom, is that's a little off. From I, I don't want anyone in the bathroom with me either, but it is what? funny that those Breaking. people are policing that. Wait, did, everybody poops. Did you guys hear that? Everybody poops. Civility alert, <laughs> redhead. Civility alert, paging Chuck Todd. Paging Chuck Todd. Tip O'Neill, oh. Ronald Reagan, <laughs> oh, no. you're needed with a it's bourbon. Still going. Tommy, we do recognize your voice. Red <laughs> hen. Red hen. Oh, my God. It's, Red it's a lot hen. of dialogue. It's a lot of siren dialogue. <laughs> you can cut it anytime. <laughs> That's, uh, 
That's the sound you hear in Washington when a civility debate breaks out. I hate them. I hate every part of them. I hate all the I, like. As soon as I saw that that happened, I was like, "It's gonna be I three just, days." I want to like, I want to mute it from my feed. Uh, I don't no. want to hear either side of it. I think it's I so know. fucking stupid. Like, anyway. apparently, she hasn't held a town hall in three years, which would help you understand the frustration of activists who feel like they can't get a question answered unless they go to a fundraiser. Yeah, I mean, which is a problem in itself. I, one more thing about the press narrative. Like, I think there's there's two parts of it that drove me nuts. One is the, you know, the press says everything is dying when it's not really dying because they always want to jump to conclusions. The other, there's an ideological element to it, which is, and and Dan made this point in his message box over the weekend, like, I do think a lot of political reporters have a bias towards moderation, balance, centrism. They always like to call out the ideological extremes in both parties. Yes. So this whole like Biden threw his lot in with the left thing is such a misreading of the situation and a misreading of the history. Like just about every Democrat, including Joe Biden, ran in 2020 on a set of proposals that cost a lot more than this bill right now. And then they all won. <laughs> they won by a majority of votes and they all took power. And then Bernie Sanders put out $6 trillion and then they all compromised down to $3.5 trillion. This was Joe Biden's agenda. It's not a surprise. It's not like he threw in with the left. It's literally what just about every single Democrat in Congress ran on and won on in 2020. It drives me fucking nuts. That part I agree with. I don't really think it's a big deal for the press to declare like what a big vote goes down because an artificial expectation was set by the leadership around that vote of course they're going to report on that as being a failure it doesn't mean it's like dead in the water like it was overstated but i agree with you on that like it yes it is not throwing the left when 90 percent of the caucus is with biden on this yeah, yeah the, 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 the biden setback stuff from the press did not it's i think it's silly and i disagree with it but it did not bother me as much as the ideological stuff that biden with left because what the press wants is they want a narrative that Joe Biden lost the midterms because he tacked too far to the left. They've been looking for that narrative since the beginning, and that's what they're driving towards because they're lazy and they're comfortable with that narrative and they've used it before. And also, like, it's a it's a search for the new and, like, saying that Democrats no longer have the ability to govern. Like, there's one, I think, ironclad truth of the last decade in American politics, go back further, that there's a governing party, that's Democratic Party, there's a political party, that's Republican Party. We are in the midst of a negotiation trying to figure out how to just get the debt summit raised because the Republicans have abandoned any any pretense of helping to prevent a global financial crisis. It is not the time to say that, oh, well, can Democrats govern? We're the only ones trying. Uh, one other piece of this that has been, I think, something I hope we do in the future is, um, I think it's okay if we talk about uh, what these bills cost per year and not the full 10-year total. Mm -hmm, yeah. I think that Come on, like every, we are in this like the 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 press is obsessed with the top number. They make it all about the top number, and I think we can see. But that I will a say we we played right into this at the beginning of the negotiations because a yeah. lot of and progressives too. This is we're like six trillion. No, we want three point five trillion, and everyone was sort of bragging about the number we got. I agree, which was a mistake. It, I that that agree. is not just the press. I think because I think when she when when you'll hear this later, but but uh, Congressman Jaiball talks about how like we're not starting from a number, we're starting from the policies right. and seeing what kind of policies we can yeah. get through. And I think that we everyone's finally got there now. Yeah, it was a little late. Yeah. Um. So the big question now is what does a potential compromise on Build Back Better look like, and how does this get done? Um. Pramila Jayapal, who we're going to talk to in a minute, said on Sunday that she expects the final bill to spend somewhere between the $1.5 trillion that Joe Manchin wants and the $3.5 trillion that the president and all but a few Democrats in Congress want. But bringing down the price tag will require some pretty tough choices. Uh, the Washington Post's Jeff Stein had an excellent piece on this that I highly recommend. He reported that, quote, White House officials are debating whether to drop many cherished priorities or keep a fuller range of initiatives in dramatically reduced form. Basically, do you fully and permanently fund just a few important policies and build back better, or do you try to fund them all with less money over just a few years? Uh, what do you guys think? I don't know. The devil is so in the details on this. I mean, mm. like a lot of the, the proposals are, do you do everything a little bit? Do you means test a bunch of things, which is to say, do you make uh, dental benefits uh, for Medicare kick in only if you're under a certain economic threshold? Or do you just pick and choose a few things? Like the one thing I really want in this bill is climate change funding, because I worry that this will is our, one of our last chances to have full democratic control for a while. Um, the planet's burning, you guys might have noticed. And Biden is about to go to this international conference at the end of the month where he's going to ask China and India and every other country to do something on climate change. And it kind of helps to have done something yourself. So that's the thing I really want there. But I don't know, you're seeing really smart people argue both sides of this, and it's hard to know. 
Yeah, I, I agree. It is hard. You know, uh, you hear you'll hear some with respect of like do a few programs, do them really, really well, right. do them fully funded. We talked to Congressman Jayapal. She talked a bit more about like show people a bunch of different ways their lives can be made better, and then all of a sudden you'll find the will to make them permanent after the fact. The one, well, I, I agree with Tommy on the climate pieces. I also think that the uh, child tax benefits that we know have had such a positive impact on child mm-hmm. poverty. Like, I think that that is something that should continue. And the there was a there was a moment even in the negotiations over the three point five where it wasn't about capping or sunsetting certain provisions to sa- save money, but actually not having them kick in for three, four, five years. And I find that to be like it's an worst. odd decision. Like, oh, we don't worry. We passed a dental benefit. It kicks in in 2025. Like I, I have I have trouble understanding the politics of that. But beyond that, I think- these are uh, I, part- I don't have trouble understanding the politics of that. They're shitty. Terrible. Well, I have trouble. <laughs> I have, that's, of politics. course. I have trouble understanding the logic of that. I have never heard a justification for that that makes sense. By the way, that the House did that. Biden, the White House's position is that they should kick in immediately. And for some reason, the House did the weird 2028 thing. Yeah, it was strange. But, but all that, all that's a way of saying, like, I want- people to see positive benefits in their lives as soon as humanly possible. Beyond that, I think these are hard choices and there's good arguments to, to doing a few fully or having a few sunset to get them all in. I totally agree with both of you guys on climate. I have written down here, you have to do climate because we're facing extinction. <laughs> that's my note. <laughs> yeah, that's a good note. <laughs> I just think, I think that you should do as much healthcare as possible because um, A, we need it and it's important to people and B, it's the most politically popular. Again, if you, we've all seen a million polls now of the Build Back Better agenda and at the top of the polls, the tax increases on the rich and the corporation. So that's going to happen no matter what because that's how we pay for the thing. But number two is always uh, prescription drugs through Medicare. It's some it's it's expanding Medicare for dental and vision. It's some of the ACA subsidies. Like that's all the next kind of stuff. So I would do that. I do think... Politically, the challenge is, I think there's a couple challenges politically. If you do the a few programs and do them well thing, you have a very large fractious caucus where everyone has different opinions and different interests and you have a bunch of different interest groups out there and, you know, activist organizations, stuff like that. You start killing off programs altogether. You might not have the votes to pass the bill, which is why I feel like they're going to end up doing a little bit of everything because they're in a situation where you don't get every Democrat minus three in the House on board, you don't have a bill. Which is why I do think you also end up coming back to some means testing in some of these places because it's a place yeah. where you can make up some money while still delivering people who need the most help. And like, there's good arguments for not doing means testing. And I think one thing that I think progressives point out, which is true, which is um, like sometimes you have like, in order to get the actual financial benefits, the, te- the, the cost benefits of means testing, you actually have to lower the threshold because there's so many administrative costs associated with it. But... It's just, yeah, I mean, some of the things you're talking about, right, climate funding, national paid leave, child tax credit, universal pre-K, free child care, affordable housing. I mean, it's it's so hard to choose. I mean, my fear is that we are so bad at means testing things. You know, look at what happened with some of the most recent COVID stimulus bills. And again, like on this, on this, um, you know, putting dental in Medicare, I mean, they're talking about cutting it off for people making over 39,000. I mean, if you've Let's say you're it's nothing, poor it's nothing. and you have not gone to the dentist for a long time. You go and you have like three root canals. It's going to cost you thousands of dollars, maybe even 10 grand to get that done. And all of a sudden, a quarter of your income is gone. So I, I don't know how you do this well. Yeah, I think sometimes when you hear means testing, people are like, well, rich people shouldn't get these benefits. I, I get that, but that's not where a lot of these thresholds are, no, as right. you point out, which is you know, it was like 300% of poverty. Yeah, I, I think that I think that doing it, doing more for a couple of years, especially if you can get some of these programs to last through 2024, then if you're Democrats, your bet is either Democrats win in 2024 and we extend them or Republicans win and they face a cliff of all these very popular programs being run out. And then maybe at that point, Republicans extend them because they know they're popular and they'd rather fight culture wars than uh, fight on some of these economic issues, which is basically what you saw in the Trump years, especially around some of the COVID relief stuff. And by the way, you know, it's been a long time since the Tea Party. We're talking about spending uh, multiple trillions of dollars. There's no massive outpouring of protest. Yeah, I mean, I do think that that logic makes sense because by the way, if some of those programs don't get uh, continued and they do get sunset uh, to, to have them kind of kick in earlier and use the money now, uh, that's no better than having not created them in the first place. Yeah, that's well, right. most of the uh, Tea Party protests had more to do with the race of the person spending the money Correct. that it did about Again. the uh, spending itself. Another thing that, you know, 10 years later, people haven't really wrapped their heads around when they're doing punditry about the Tea Party. Yeah, that's an interesting take that the Tea Party was more a cultural and identity war than a war over taxes and budgets. <laughs> I mean, it was completely astroturfed by yeah. like the Koch brothers and stuff too. All right, when we come back, we'll ask Pramila Jayapal what her preference is and how she thinks Democrats can land this plan.
tours take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. We are back with the member of Congress who is probably most responsible for getting the original two-track strategy back on track to help ensure that Joe Biden's entire agenda is passed. The chair of the House Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal. Congresswoman, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back with you. We're happy to have you. So you seemed uh, pretty confident on Sunday when you told Dana Bash that Joe Manchin's $1.5 trillion offer is, quote, not going to happen. How much confidence do you have that Manchin or Cinema isn't going to say at one point, this is my final offer, take it or leave it. I'm willing to walk away with nothing. Well, you know, I just feel like we're at the beginning of the negotiation, which is what we wanted to have a negotiation. I mean, we thought it had already been negotiated at 3.5, but clearly that's not the case. So I feel like we're at the beginning of that, but I wanted to clearly signal that the number comes out of the priorities and the president's agenda, the Build Back Better agenda. And so there is a point at which it's simply not possible to do the things that we want to do. And um, that's how I feel about the 1.5 number. But, you know, obviously, I understand we're going to have to get everybody on board here. And we are completely committed to doing that and have told the president that have, have you know, I've told people who have said that Senator Manchin wants to speak to progressive leaders that I'm happy to do that with him anytime. This is the important part, John, right? Like we're we're in the process of delivering transformative change for people and we're going to do everything we can to get that done. Um, you also talked about including more programs and build back better, but maybe for a shorter period of time. Could you make the argument for that approach over selecting a few of the most important programs and permanently funding them? Yes, absolutely. So my feeling is that we have several key things that are appealing to different kinds of families. So paid leave, for example, if everyone got 12 weeks of paid leave, that would benefit an enormous percentage of people across the country. Um, at the same time, we've got families who've got young kids who desperately need childcare, um, and we've got people who really need to go to community college or trade school for two years so that they can get the jobs that we're going to create in the infrastructure package and, and other places. And so I don't want to pit one thing against another, but I do believe that if we fund things for, say, five years or six years instead of 10 years, then people will see what that means for their lives. They will be able to wake up in the morning and not just see a road that's been built, which may take a little while or may not be in their district, but they'll actually be able to say, hey, now I can go back to work because I have childcare or I can take care of my loved one because I have paid family leave, those kinds of things. Have you found Josh Gottheimer's sleeping form surrounded by Red Bull cans and problem solver business cards somewhere in the Capitol? And did you consider tucking him in like a little cherub? I leave all of that beautiful imagination to you guys. <laughs> Do dodging the question. Did you make sure he wasn't chilly or not? Uh, but, uh, Have you not noticed that I wake up very zen every morning you do. and I love all of my colleagues and I want them all to be on this final bill? You've shown incredible restraint, I thought. Let me ask a, let me ask a real follow up about that, actually, which is, um, it, you know, it seemed like uh, Congressman Gottheimer. I thought you were going to ask me if I was going to bring him a blanket. No, go ahead. <laughs> it seemed like uh, Gottheimer was pretty uh, uh, frustrated when he released this kind of statement. And one thing he did in that statement was he uh, took a uh, 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 an, an idea from The New York Times that somehow the Progressive Caucus is behaving like the Freedom Caucus, uh, which I found strange because this is a group of people trying to pursue the, what the majority of the caucus wants along with what President Biden wants. And that the better comparison to the Freedom Caucus is what some of the moderates are doing. What do you make of that comparison to the Freedom Caucus? Well, I've never liked the comparison to the Freedom Caucus. You guys might have asked me about this when I was on your show once or twice before. People always want to make that comparison. Why on earth would we want to be anything like a caucus that doesn't even believe that January 6th was real? You know, I mean, this is just not a, a comparison that makes any sense. And then as, as you said, we are behind the president's Build Back Better agenda, the same agenda 
that all Democrats ran on in the House, the Senate, and you know what we ran on to deliver the White House. And fundamentally, we had 96% of Democrats in the House and the Senate on board with the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better Act. It was really only just a 4% that weren't. And so I, I, I don't think, look, I think people have to say whatever they've got to say, and hopefully everyone gets upset and then comes back to the table, recognizing that we're all on the same team. We're all trying to deliver transformative results. And so I've tried to stay in that place. But I, I don't think that the country sees it that way. I think that, you know, the reality was we had a, we had a deal. <laughs> um, as, as the president says, here's the deal. Um, you know, we had a deal. And the deal was that the, the two bills were going to move together. This, the, that was the position of the Progressive Caucus. And right after we said that three and a half months ago, the speaker took that same position, the Senate majority leader, the president, everybody. And um, that was also the deal by which 11, at least 11 senators voted for the bipartisan bill out of the Senate because they were assured that the two would move together. It was really the small group of people. And I don't even want to call them moderates. You know, this is this is not a progressive versus a moderate fight. This is a everybody in the 96 percent of Democrats in the House and the Senate and the White House. Um, and then the four percent that don't agree. All of that said, the reason we're at the table is because we have such slim margins that we need to get 100 percent. It's not enough just to have 96 percent. We got to get everybody on board. And we understand that. Uh, Joe Manchin seems to have drawn a few red lines in negotiations. One of them is around the Hyde Amendment, which restricts abortion coverage. Um, he said that the bill would be dead on arrival if it doesn't include the Hyde Amendment. You said on Sunday you wouldn't vote for a bill that does include the Hyde Amendment. Wouldn't that sink the bill? Or is there some potential compromise I'm missing here that could satisfy both parties? Well, look, I've been clear that I want to repeal the Hyde Amendment. That is also what the president's position is. But what I was actually saying, and, you know, I think sometimes these things get just, it's difficult on TV in a short thing. But what I was actually saying is that the Hyde Amendment is the law, unfortunately, for people like me that believe it shouldn't be. Right. Um, I would like to repeal it, but I'm not suggesting that we put the repeal into this bill. What I am saying is that the Hyde Amendment is already law. So why would we add it into the bill as a political statement when it's already the law. We don't right. need this happens a lot here in Congress where people are like, oh, I want to show everybody that I'm anti-abortion, you know, and I don't want federal funds to go to abortions. And I'm like, well, they don't already. So Got it. don't put it in the bill because you make those of us who actually want to repeal it vote for it again. And we don't need to number one, because we don't believe in it, and number two, because it's already law, and we're not proposing in this bill to repeal it. We have a separate bill to repeal the Hyde Amendment, which I am proudly a co-sponsor of, but um, we do not, it just is ridiculous to talk about it in this bill because that's the law currently. Got it. Um, and then on, on climate, uh, Manchin said he supports investing in clean energy, but not making fossil fuel companies pay. Can you imagine a clean energy standard that could work without those kinds of penalties? You know, I can't um, imagine it, but that doesn't mean, you know, we, we have to talk it through. And I, I feel like on every single one of these things, if I just, it, it kind of happened with the Hyde Amendment yesterday, you know, it's sort of like then you negotiated in public and I just don't know what he wants. I wanna see um, in detail exactly what it is. For us, the priority has been to have the clean electricity performance standards and then to have a set of tax credits that um, also are like both the, the stick and the carrot of helping companies to do the right thing. And um, I, I just don't really understand what, what it is he's asking for. And I think at the end of the day, if we don't really have both a carrot and a stick, we're not going to cut carbon emissions. And the president is going to go to COP26 in a couple of weeks. And he's not even going to be able to say that the United States can be a leader on fighting climate change. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the other holdout in the Senate, uh, Kirsten Sinema. You know, she put out a statement as well that was also pretty frustrated, talking about the fact that she feels as though she has been forthright with some of her demands. Do you feel like in the past few days you've gotten more clarity on what her negotiating position is? Um, not. I, I know that she is making that clear to the White House. Uh, I don't know that we're privy to all of that as yet. So a lot of the negotiating is happening behind the scenes. And I've tried to tell my colleagues who are 
you know, on the progressive side who are saying they're frustrated because they haven't said what they want. I actually don't think that's true. I think they are, um, particularly her, I think she is saying um, some of what she wants. I'm just not privy to all of that. There will be a point at which, you know, hopefully either we all sit down in a room together or we sit down in rooms right next to each other and there's subtle diplomacy going on. I mean, I'm open to any any of those ideas, but um, I do think that there's been amazing progress made. And that's why I think it was so important. I mean, actually, I feel like everything we thought would happen, I'm just saying we're, you know, give me the, the globe and the, you know, the crystal ball, because it, I feel like everything we thought would happen did happen. When we split the two apart, we pitted roads and bridges against childcare, something we never should have done. The infrastructure package is important. It's got 15% of the president's agenda in there. The other 85% is contained within the Build Back Better Act. And I knew that if we split them apart, this would happen. That's why we wanted to link them together. And then we saw when it tried to be split again with what um, some of my colleagues did, the same dynamic started happening where we were arguing about uh, passing one bill and leaving behind the other, because you guys know politics better than anybody else in the podcast world. And you know that five and a half months was spent on this infrastructure bill. We are already at in, in the beginning of October. And if we don't get this reconciliation bill done as quickly as possible, it stretches into next year, it stretches into the end of this year, and it just becomes harder and harder. So delay, in my mind, delay means death on the reconciliation bill. And that's why it's so important we keep them together and pass them quickly. Hypothetically, if you were a senator blocking a reconciliation bill and then were protested by people who wanted to see action, uh, and those protesters followed you into the bathroom. I know that if I was in that situation, I would give up. I would just say whatever you need me to say, I am for if I can have some privacy in the shitter. That's sort of what my position would be. Especially if they took the toilet paper. Right, they might have taken the toilet. We don't know, we don't know. That, that's a separate track, that's another negotiation. What would your posture be in that circumstance? How quickly would you concede to all their demands? Well, I would never be in that situation. You know that, right? I would be doing the right thing right at the beginning. So nobody would have to follow me into the toilet and take my toilet paper away. <laughs> that we will. That's. I'm glad we have you on record there. Um, is I there, can't believe you made me say that. I, I, it, this is just, it's wild. Um, is there anything else the president and the White House could be doing to be more helpful right now? I know, you know there's all these anonym, anonymous griping that they're not doing enough here and there. How do you feel about what they're doing and, and could they be doing anything else? No, I feel like, um, look, I'll say that I think they could have started earlier. I'll just say that. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, I tried to say that a couple of months ago. Now, I, I, on their behalf, I can also say that, you know, Afghanistan, you name it. We got a lot of things that happened. But I was worried that we were spending so much time celebrating the bipartisan bill and not enough time actually working on and um, negotiating and talking about what the Build Back Better agenda has in it or the Build Back Better Act. And so in some weird way, all of this attention has allowed us to describe on national television over and over and over and over again what is in the Build Back Better Act. And so I think that's been good. Um, I do think that over the last couple week to two weeks, they've been deeply involved, very deeply involved. Um, some of which I know about, some of which I don't know about. And I think I, I think that they um, they knew we were serious. I mean, they knew I, I'm not somebody who just does this all the time and then doesn't have the votes to deliver. If I say we've got the votes is because I'm really confident we've got the votes. And we had the votes. Um, we had more every day, actually. <laughs> the more shenanigans went on, the more people got frustrated and said, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to leave people behind. And so I think the White House knew that, and they were really trying to get us to a place where maybe both on content and on process moving forward, we could find some agreements. But clearly, we just there wasn't enough time. So now, I heard that the president is going to Michigan, which I'm really excited about. I, I want him to be out there just talking about what this does, everything that's in the Build Back Better Act, the tax piece of it. I mean, this is a president that is proposing that the wealthiest corporations and wealthiest individuals that made billions during the pandemic as people were being evicted from their homes actually finally pay their fair share. And that is a phenomenal idea. And that's why when I was at the White House the last time, um, I guess it was about a week ago, 
And I said, Mr. President, I really hope you talk about this as a zero dollar bill. Mm. And I was very happy. Am I claiming this as mine? Kind of, but I don't know if it really was. But the very next day, he went out and started talking about it as uh, a bill that really doesn't cost anything because it's all going to be paid for with these taxes on the wealthiest paying their fair share. I've seen uh, politicians take credit for doing far less. So I think <laughs> I should take the credit. Um, I, I will say that you you seem pretty zen. I don't know if that's just a savvy negotiating uh, stance, but you, you feel pretty confident that we're going to get a good bill by at the end of the day? I do. I really do. And here's why. 70% of the American people support what's in the Build Back Better Act, more if you add in the taxes. The president of the United States came down five months ago, rolled down Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House to the Capitol and delivered this in his speech to us. This is not, as yeah. I said on, on one of the shows yesterday, this is not some crazy left-wing wish list. I have that, by the way. <laughs> but this is not that. This is the president's agenda, an agenda that Democrats agree on and that people, the American people want to see get it done. And I think the very last reason I feel confident about it is um, we, I'm an organizer and the, the best things come out of the worst crises. Like the, the things that really make a difference and transform people's lives come out of those moments of crisis where everyone kind of wakes up and says, oh my God, it can't continue this way. And I feel like that's where the country is on childcare, on paid leave, on healthcare, on care for seniors to have dental vision and hearing, on immigration, on housing, like these things that we have picked as progressive caucus priorities five months ago are the things that are most necessary and most popular and very much now part of the president's agenda and the democratic agenda. Yeah, very much agree. Last question, uh, a dazzle of zebras. Give me about toilets. It's not, it's not, <laughs> I promise. A dazzle of zebras is on the loose in Maryland. That's a great name for a group of zebras. Uh, please help us decide on a good name for a group of centrists. Here are some pitches. A playbook of moderates. <laughs> A swamp of moderates. You stop me when you get to one you like. A means test of moderates. <laughs> a focus group of moderates. A super pack of moderates. A fundraiser of moderates. A triangulation of moderates. Or final option, a green room of moderates. Where's your head at? Um, this is important. This is important stuff. Well, because I take these answers extremely seriously, mm -hmm. let me think about that. In fact, I'll put out a poll to my Twitter <laughs> followers and see who likes what. That Perfect. will do it. We'll that take will it. Do That's it. a great deal. Perfect. Another deal made. <laughs> <laughs> Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thank you so much for joining and making the time. Good luck on the negotiations and uh, come back soon. Thank you both so much. take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways your dedicated fidelity advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened visit fidelity.com wealth investment minimum supply fidelity brokerage services llc member nyse sipc All right, before we go, uh, let's answer some listener questions. Questions. Uh, here's a combo of questions. Uh, some of these are for Tommy. Uh, Rebecca asks, is Tommy planning on watching season two of Emily in Paris or has he regained taste in television? Kate asks a similar question, but, but with a creative twist. Uh, has Tommy started writing his Squid Game Emily in Paris mashup fan fiction yet? Uh, and then Caleb asks all of us generally favorite shows you guys are watching or who have watched recently. Tommy? My pitch, Kate, was uh, Squid Game and Great British Bake Off. Now, love it. Sort of poo-pooed it. Okay. I just think... Um, uh, no, I, I would... I, I think that um, uh, seeing Paul Hollywood fight someone to the death is like a cool idea. With Prue with a gun. Yeah. Spoiler. It's like, hey, hey Prue, you fighting dirty? And dirty proof. What's a game proof? Are you going to watch the season two of uh, Emily in Paris? I don't know. I might. So I might. I, well, I don't so. know. It's not even a question. You know why? Because you don't even have to look up from your phone once, and you kind of know what happens. <laughs> uh, it's a person is in Paris. There's no conflicts, and then the <laughs> show's over. 
That's what happens. That sounds like show. a guy that's uh, setting up to watch uh, season two. Like <laughs> Any other favorite shows you guys are watching that we uh, you want to share with everyone? The other two? Yeah. I was, I was hoping someone, someone would say that. It's not a show, but I'm playing the uh, DLC for the game Outer Wilds. You got mad at me when I called you DLC. Downloadable content, not Democratic Leadership Committee. What is downloadable content? It is when you can, when a game they release an additional part of the game that you can download to kind of continue to explore the world. Oh, the kids these days are cool. doing all kinds of crazy things and, in the video games. And the game Outer Wilds is that like an, an extra Nintendo cartridge? Sure, it's like an extra Nintendo cartridge. And <laughs> is this like Mist. It's sure. It is actually not. It is. I would say. I would say spiritually. Not an unfair uh, comparison and not so unfair to call it a successor. Been away from video games uh, for a while. Outer Wilds. Play Outer Wilds. Adventures it's one of the best of games ever made. It's not a long play, a yeah, little bit of a learning curve. Give it the time. Don't do what Akila did, which is Google the ending. Oh. It really frustrated me, Akila. I just rewatched about it. Secession because uh, oh, new wait. one's coming up. I can't wait. Very excited for that. Uh, Caleb also asked us um, PSA tour soon? Question mark? Nah. Absolutely. Yes. What? Oh. Did you say? <laughs> oh, we're not. Tommy's not coming. Uh, <laughs> shit. Twenty twenty two. Get ready. You know unless, unless Fauci cancels that as well as Christmas. You know that Dan Just and Tommy kidding. can't be in the same place. Okay. A quick PSA to liberals. Um, when Fauci says something like that is being misinterpreted by some Republican on Twitter, don't quote tweet them and spread their insane claim that Fauci's trying to cancel Twitter for your mostly mediocre jokes. Right. Screenshot it. Screen, yeah, learn to screenshot. Yeah. I or have just to remind myself, I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's a tough thing to remind yourself of, but you have to do that. Um, Danita asks, if you had to go on a weekend couples retreat with a Republican lawmaker, who would it be and why? Tommy? Matt Gates. Hey. He's down to party. <laughs> it's just so bad. That's it's a joke. That's a joke. Shame John Boehner, because the believe. weed and the wine would be on him. Oh, that's interesting. Mm, that's right. Okay. That's and right. you're going Good. somewhere sunny because that tan's not That's better doing than itself. your initial take that uh, will surely get you canceled. Um, oh, God. He's turning into... Oh, he's no. turning He's turning invisible like Michael J. Fox. <laughs> <laughs> he's being canceled. <laughs> he can't play the guitar <laughs> <Okay>. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> We're watching it happen right It's here. in real time. <laughs> well, uh, um, Marty, it's about your kids. They've been canceled. <laughs> your, your boy tweeted something. Marty. That's not the voice that Christopher Lloyd uses. That's pretty good. <laughs> Zach on Twitter asks, what would you bring to a dinner party on Joe Manchin's houseboat? Um, uh, I feel like Manchin is a bourbon guy. Some just things bring I've read. Some, bring him some bourbon, huh? Some chips and dip. Maybe some handcuffs so they can't leave until they're done figuring out what they need to figure out. Yeah. No, I would... Um, I've said this before, but I would pull up the anchor on the Almost Heaven. I'd bring the rest of the... Um, the rest of the Democratic, I'd bring Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, yeah. Sanders, and then just drift out to sea until they strike a deal. Yeah, just a, a God, Godheimer and a little, um, a little raft behind us, just pulling <laughs> yeah. the a little dinghy. Just every day we float over a, a couple bottles of water, some saltines. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Angela asked, what's your most embarrassing interaction with a celebrity? That's such a great question, and I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> you you asked for this question, so clearly you have a good... Uh... Uh, you see, there's a theory on the internet called Darth Jar Jar. This is a theory that suggests in mm. episode one of uh, the uh, uh, Star Wars prequels that George Lucas was setting up Jar Jar Binks, one of the most annoying characters in the history of cinema, uh, as a villain, and that that would have been revealed in episode two. That the whole plan was to make this annoying character, but planted inside of the film were the seeds of the fact that this was actually a Sith Lord that was going to reveal themselves as the supervillain. The twist of this series in the way that Darth being Darth Vader being Luke's father was the tr twist of Empire. He talked a lot about the episodes rhyming. That was the theory. But when everyone hated Jar Jar Binks so much, he abandoned it and then introduced Count Dooku and General Grievous and kind of the films went off the rails and there was no kind of satisfying twist. So Ronan brought me as a plus one to a party. I saw George Lucas at the event and I uh, decided to psych myself up to ask him about this. Ronan turned to me and said, do not ask him about George George. You don't do that. We're at a party. Do not go up to George Lucas. And so I did something which was so embarrassing, which is I went up to George Lucas at just a private function to ask him a question about Star Wars lore. And I said, uh, I don't. I said, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this theory before, but there's this theory about Darth Jar Jar. Is there any truth to it whatsoever? And he looked at me 
like I was the dumbest motherfucker <laughs> on planet Earth. It was one of the most withering, like not no, no joy in his voice, no enjoyment of the proposition, just an entirely, his face scowled and he just said, no, absolute, what? No, never nonsense. And then, then I saw the back of George Lucas. Wow. Wow. You'd think he felt he'd be, bad. I got very sweaty. Wouldn't you want to talk about that? That's like his thing. Yeah, why was he so mean about it? I think that a lot of nerds have gone out to George Lucas at yeah. events and, and said, I'd like, like to talk is, to you about Star Wars. Yeah, this is like my free time. I am um, at a White House Correspondence Center once. I stepped on the train of Juliana Margulies' dress mm -hmm. and I apologized immediately and profusely and she just was not having it. <laughs> she was very angry at me. I, I, I tripped. I'm klutzy. It wasn't great. Tommy, you know, you I, just, I prefer to be out there with the people, you know, like, oh, okay. get, get, just yeah. me in a shovel ready job. You know, one time, I mean? one time Tommy really embarrassed himself in front of Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's true. Slub broadcaster Dan Pfeiffer. Uh, Jackie on Twitter asks, has Steny Hoyer ever been on message? No. Easy. <laughs> I don't know. Couple ones were cut in here. Anisha on Facebook. Who do you think will be potential primary challengers to cinema? Uh, Ruben Gallego. Congressman from Arizona, I believe, Just is getting my donation finger about ready. about it. Already that up there, yeah. Congressman, progressive, Arizona. Could be interesting. My fingers casting about, looking for an act blue page. Uh, love it. You once listed the 10 best fast food items, and there was not one Wendy's item. Do you wish to address this most heinous uh, no. oversight? No. Next question. Wendy's is just mediocre. It's Carl's Jr. with baked Garbage. potatoes. Let's, let's move on. Yeah. Uh, Indica or Sativa, love it? Sure. Yes. You're <laughs> like, hey, Isaac, who asked this? You're kidding yourself if you think there's a real distinction. There is none. Um, yeah. It's all the same shit. They've I been think crossed that, over so many times. I think I think more importantly, I think there is, I think the nuance, it's not that there isn't a distinction, it's that the distinction is more nuanced. I think the distinction is entirely subjective. Like some person along the way is like, this strain is chill and this one is energy. And you're just, it's, there's no like real science to I it. I mean, let's get into it. I mean, the reality is that each of these strains have a mix of different kinds of, exactly. what are they called? Cannabinoids that are inside of them that are totally different, that are slightly different in certain ways. And they're all in different yeah. combinations. And like indica sativa as a divide is I think, um, honestly, it's like the progressive, mo progressive yeah. moderate divide in the house. You know, actually when you dig into it, that's not really what we're dealing with here. Not in this case. All right. Well, that's, I don't know. I'm really stoned. So I'm I think not that's sure. right. I think that's right. <laughs> that's it. He is pretty stoned. It is Monday afternoon. Uh, that's all the time we have. That's all the time we have. Thanks to Pramila Jayapal for joining us and, and telling us what she prefers in Dakar Sativa. She and, did. Uh, she did not do that. No, she did not. And uh, we'll talk to you later this week. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Brian Semmel, Caroline Reston, Madison Hallman, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. Doors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.